0: And now, the Andy Greenwald podcast. Andy, Andy.
1: Hello and welcome to the Grantland Network. My name is Andy Greenwald. Exciting day here in New York. I am joined by a guest who is via Saboley. I'm not even sure what it is, but he is in Los Angeles. He is the author of a tremendous novel called All Involved that is published uh, by Echo. It is in stores now. It chronicles the Los Angeles riots of 1992 from a multitude of points of view and perspectives. It is absolutely gripping. It is harrowing. It is unsettling. It's pretty brilliant. I really recommend people read it. Ryan Gaddis, welcome.
0: (laughs) Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for being here. I, I, I appreciate you being here. And it's very fitting that you are in Los Angeles while I speak to you because that is the, very much the setting and the main character of your book all involved.
0: And it's where I live. And it's where, and it's
1: where you <laughs> live. So it's really about making you comfortable. Well, thank um, you. <laughs> we, we're going to talk about the book um, and we're going to talk about uh, I, the L.A. riots as a historical fact. But I, I was actually shocked to discover that you are not from Los Angeles originally.
0: I'm not. I'm from Colorado originally. I grew up in Colorado Springs. And what brought you to Los Angeles, and, and when did it happen? You know, i that's a long story, sir. <laughs> okay. Should we save that for another
1: podcast? No, no,
0: no. Well, obviously, yes, because I want to be <laughs> on again. But no, I think that the, the short version is, you know, I was, I've been working out here. Uh, I was uh, teaching writing at Chapman University in Orange County. Uh, I had a decent book out many years ago called kung fu high school which we sold to the weinstein company and then i took eight years to write a follow-up i very badly struggled to do that and um had a had a bit of a breakdown when i failed to do that and uh, i i decided in 2008 i'm going to move to la i really needed to change the scenery so in, in in a nutshell yeah that's how i got here
1: So what was your perspective growing up of Los Angeles as a city? Um, Because it it has sort of a monolithic footprint on our culture, and that footprint is not often – doesn't really reflect the reality of the the city as I've come to know it, and as I'm sure – as clearly you know it much better than I do. But the the version of L.A. that exists in the minds of people who grow up outside of L.A. is is not always close to the reality of it.
0: Sure, and often it is – diametrically opposed. Uh, right. I think in this case, I think, you know, you were you used a perfect word, monolithic. Uh, growing up in Colorado, I, my understanding of Los Angeles, since I hadn't been here, was what I saw from television and films. And uh, there's a great film called L.A. Plays Itself that it's just, just gets so excited and, and uh, geeky in, in a wonderful way about the ways in which TV and film actually get the geography of Los Angeles wrong. Uh, And I think in in some small way that that was what happened to me. Uh, You know, when I got here and I realized, wait a second, I thought L.A. was just one one place. And, you know, I thought it it wasn't that it was a city, but it's actually, you know, the city of Los Angeles is quite small. It's the county of Los Angeles. That's that's nine million people plus uh so it was discovering that it was discovering that there are all these little cities within that county that although for the rest of the world they stand in as los angeles they are autonomous and in some cases uh, really have their own uh, kind of crazy things going on
1: yeah uh and i I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned los angeles plays itself i think it's on netflix so if people are listening I to this so I, too. I, yeah. I hope you go oh, check it out it's really fascinating um, but yeah, in 1992, when the LA riots occurred, I was 15 years old. I was living in Philadelphia. And, I, and when I think of it now, I, th- I think of two things in particular. I'm wondering if you had a similar experience from a distance. One was I remember perceiving it all as a very almost easy binary, that there was a bad result in the, in the, the trial and the mm-hmm. Rodney King verdict. But then there was also just bad behavior. It was bad that led to more bad and that Rodney King's question, um, can't we all get along, wasn't rhetorical there was an answer it was yes of course we can everything's going to work out Mm. um that also might be more a product of being 15 than being in philadelphia um the other (laughs) thing i remember is just not comprehending the physical space of this place Mm. i thought as you did i guess that you know that los angeles was a city where they made movies and then all of a sudden you see places on fire and that appear to be dozens of miles apart and just an enormous enormous i'll say it again it's a a monolithic space that, that just almost it's incomprehensible from a distance.
0: Yeah, and and it's interesting too because I think one of the interesting things about Los Angeles plays itself is that it also frequently stands in for all of these right. other cities <laughs> right. in cinema. But when you actually come here, and I, one of the um, the metaphors I use for it is that if New York is a cold vertical, Los Angeles is a hot horizontal. Yeah, you don't realize how wide it is until you're here, until you're driving it until you're stuck in traffic uh, you know the county of LA is almost 5,000 square miles. It is absolutely enormous. Uh, as far as you know my what I saw, um, I, it was a different city than I expected that I saw on television back then I remember I was 13. When it mm-hmm. happened and I remember standing in front of the television and you know I think the newscaster said something to the effect of if you have a weak stomach or a weak constitution turn away now and then they showed what happened on the intersection of Florence and Normandy to Reginald Denny when he yeah. was hit in the head with a big chunk of concrete by Damien Football Williams uh, that as far as you know you mentioned kind of the physical cost and at least for me it was I, I didn't understand it in any way, shape, or form. I think now that we have the benefit of hindsight, we can understand it a little bit better. You know, yeah. Damien Williams was a gang member. You know, you, you, there's no way for you to know that in the moment, seeing it and, and trying to comprehend it. Uh, but it's it's just... I think to this day, though, there, there are areas in Los Angeles that where, where even Angelenos don't go. And I think that's why I really was interested in, in, in delving into Linwood and, and kind of showing, you know... Uh, the world, what what this place is like.
1: Well, not to sound too much like Paul Haggis here, but the, one of the more amazing things about Los Angeles to me is that if you're going from the airport or the beach and you're going to downtown and you are doing it at the right moment during the day and there's no traffic, which I believe is possible occasionally, <laughs> on occasion, uh, it's a straight shot, and mm. you're in your car and you're in your bubble, and then you're in one place and then you're in the other place, and it. it, it it takes a leap of imagination to think about how every exit, every stop along the way is another part of the city where people yeah. live and people work and people die. And it's very easy to miss that, I think, even if you oh, – yeah. I would imagine even for people who live there.
0: Well, yeah, and, and describing a car as a bubble is a really great uh, way, to, way to say it, I think, because it is not – until very recently is not my experience of Los Angeles. Uh, I didn't own a car until about two years ago.
1: Oh my God! You're Just, a unicorn.
0: So, <laughs> I am one of the three unicorns in Los Angeles. <laughs> right. But there's actually a unicorn people in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, and generally speaking, it, it's folks who either don't have their own cars or can't afford to. Right. So I spend an awful lot of time riding buses and riding trains, and and it, you get a completely different experience of Los Angeles when you're not driving and getting upset about what other people are doing. You know, when it is in some ways unfolding before you, you know, I took the yeah. blue line a lot, which means I was always going through South Central. And I think one of the guys that I spent a lot of time talking with for the book used to call me blue line, because he thought how great it was <laughs> that I was one of the few people he'd ever met who voluntarily took public transit in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, so I, it's it's different when Freeways are designed in a way to avoid certain neighborhoods. The 105, for example, which was being built in 92, and I mention it in the book, uh, is an elevated freeway that takes you over um, Linwood, Compton, uh, a a chunk of Inglewood, you know, some of the – what some people would call the the worst areas of Los Angeles. Uh, And it takes you to the airport, basically. That's why it was built. Um, But when you're in a bus – you know, you be, you see almost every block. You know, there there are no opportunities to uh, fly over it, so to speak, on some of these enormous uh, freeway exits and interchanges.
1: You mentioned what happened on on that intersection and what was you know broadcast around the world, where the the, mm-hmm. the man who we later would discover was a gang member hit pulled a guy out of his truck, right? And, yeah. And, and, well,
0: and he and two other uh, gang members did. Yes.
1: And how? Uh, how we didn't know the context of any of that in the moment as it was being broadcast to us. But one of the things that makes me think of uh, an aspect of your book that really struck me, which is mm. you tell the story of the, the days of the, of the L.A. riots through the, the voices and through the, the mindsets and heads, points of view of over a dozen characters. Um, Seventeen. One of the, Seventeen characters in total. <laughs> thank you. One of the few constants through those 17 points of view is that these people do not seem particularly surprised. They are by what, what, what pops off. Um, the, ex, the extent of it, the extremity of it, maybe, they are often overcome by the circumstance, whether in mm-hmm. good or bad ways, but no one seems particularly su- particularly su- surprised. It, mm-hmm. it feels like the end result of something that had been building for a long time, and the Rodney King verdict, such as it is, is almost tangential to what, what they've experienced.
0: Sure, and it's not just the people who live in those areas. It's also the people who work in those areas, and, and, right. and what you mentioned, you know, there's actually... A section in the book where one of the firefighters says, "Hey, you know, the people who are shocked by the riots are the ones who don't know what it's like in these areas, who don't yeah. understand the desperation or the survival that has to occur,
1: and don't know that in their own lives they've never known that." Indeed. Um, what was your particular way into this story? Because, as we said at the top, you're from Colorado. Um, you are, to my knowledge, not a gangbanger in, in any no way, way. Uh, nor nor are you a fireman. Let's give it equal weight.
0: Um, I'm not, although I am related to some.
1: Okay, well, so it's it's in the blood. Um, <laughs> what was your way in? Who, how did it begin? Who did you speak to? And how did you
0: gain their trust? Sure. Well, you know, I mentioned previously that there was that that time in 08 where I was having to kind of dramatically think my life and, and where I was and, and mm-hmm. what I was doing. And I honestly thought I'm never going to be a novelist again. I'm done. You know, I had colleagues at work telling me, all right, you had your shot. You, you know, go teach at a community college now because yeah. this is it for you. Um which in a way I'm very very grateful for because that gave me, uh, a, you know, drive to keep going. But d- during this time of of reflection, I actually ended up meeting a crew of street artists here in Los Angeles, Uglar. Uh, that's U G L A R, and UglarWorks.com is the uh, website. Which I am, mm-hmm. I have to tell you, uh, awesome. and I thought I would find my people, so to speak, in, in a collegiate environment. You know, I was relatively traditionally educated in terms of writing. You know, I, I, I did uh, my undergrad work in writing. I went and did my master's in England with the Poet Laureate. Uh, and so as a result, I had this, this push, you know, from, from that education that basically said, hey, all you need to be a writer, all you need is a room of your own. And yeah. you need to read some books. And that's it. That's all you need. And by that, you know, similarly, I thought, oh, I I need to be in, at a university. I need to be w- with those people. Those people are going to get me. I, I didn't find that. I didn't find that kind of connection. And, and yet I did with this crew of street artists, you know, in many ways, guys who had tremendous graffiti backgrounds who had been doing it for over 20 years. You know, um, and and they actually... Pushed me, you know, in 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 a really wonderful way. They said, "Hey, do you want to be? You know, we love your writing, we 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 like you. Uh, Do you want to be part of this crew?" I said, "Absolutely, I do." They said, "Good. Now it's time for you to do an internship." (laughs) And so for ten months, I basically uh, carried paint and cleaned up at 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 mural sites. You know, we're we're uh, certified by the city of L.A., so the work we do now is all legal. Uh, But that's what I had to do. And the interesting thing about that is that. I saw all these areas of L.A. that I never knew existed. We went to Linwood. We went to City Terrace. We went to Lincoln Heights. And in many cases, I had to actually run what's called interference uh, because when you when you go to some of these places, everybody wants to go talk to the artists. What are you doing? What, what's going on? But these guys yeah. are working. So it was up to me to go talk to anybody and everybody. And over time, I realized, wow, you know, some of these people are tremendously interesting they have an incredible uh take on the city very very different from my own and it was a little while after that that i realized because nobody tells you this initially but that i realized a number of those folks i'd met were former gang members yeah and it kind of progressed from there
1: i i love the 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 arc of that story because i completely relate to the idea that 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 those of us who are English majors are often told mm-hmm. that all you need is that, that quiet space and you have to have the correct background and then it will all come out. And that's – it reminds me of these, these people who build like immaculate pizza ovens in their backyards <laughs> but forget <laughs> to buy ingredients. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's – you can have the best oven in the world but you got to put something in it. Yeah. And that in, – in, to stretch this analogy past the breaking point, that has to be <laughs> – it has to be something that's true to life. It has to come from life. And, and being alone in that room, I mean I, I – I, I wrote a novel nine years ago. I don't know if I'll ever write another one precisely because I don't want to go back into that room. It's it's very isolating and lonely. And unless there's some something coming in at you, you know, to to counterbalance it, it can be you can sink.
0: Sure, And I think I completely relate to that because I got lost in the research. I mean, you don't write a book for eight years unless you are completely lost in the research. Yeah. And, And, you know, I just got to that point where thankfully, you know, my agent at the time said, look you, you got to let this one go <laughs> just yeah. just let it be done and and I thought that that meant that everything was over, but I think in a really useful and natural way, at least with the benefit of hindsight, I can look back and see I really needed that to happen, and I really needed to go out and talk to people and hear voices because um, I mean we mentioned that there are seventeen different you know first person characters in, in here, and if you 'd told me that initially, I think i wouldn 't have written it. I would have been terrified <laughs> yeah. of that but uh, the thing that you can't get in that room when it's just you, um, and, and this is especially true for me, is, is that human interaction, that uh, the, hear the voices of people who grew up in certain places. And, and just at least as far as my brain works, I have an aural memory, A-U-R-A-L. So I, I actually learn by hearing. Mm-hmm. And then I, I frequently will imagine how something is written you know, when I hear someone say something. And it, without that, I think I think it's fairly obvious that that was a key ingredient that my pizza oven needed. Andy, <laughs> thank you,
1: thank you for the callback. In the hierarchy of the of the book, as you describe it, um, especially with the with the Latino gangbanger characters, there are hmm. the big homies in charge, and there are little homies. Hmm. The, the people you probably met over the last few years um, are they are they retired homies? Are they are they senior citizen homies or middle aged homies at this point? I mean, what? The people that you're writing about in 92 and the way things were then, who are they today? I mean, who were you speaking to and and what was their. Was it purely something from from the history books for them or were these people who lived through it?
0: Well, I mean, I would say this L.A. is a city of homies and L.A. is also a city with a riot problem. So, you know, Zoot Suit riots in the 30s, Watts riots in 65, um, obviously the King riots in 92. Um, There's a very long tradition, a Pachuco tradition here in Los Angeles of, you know, of people who live that life. Uh as far as a number of the folks I spoke to were, you know, they they very definitely uh had an intimate understanding of of that era of that time. And, and but this this extends to the other people I spoke to, the nurses, the firefighters, right. the graffiti kids, you know, everybody. There's a reason why it's called all involved. It's not just because that's the slang for you know someone who's in, who's in a gang but it's also because it's firefighter terminology for when something is on fire so when mm. you know when it's in, a building is involved it's on fire and when it's all involved as it was in Los Angeles in 92 with over 11,000 fires that's a fairly f- fair thing to say but i think it's also true of not just the characters in the book but people anybody who lived in LA in 92 has very strong memories of that in yes. fact i've done a few readings here and and q and as and talks and and the beautiful thing is I will have people sit down in the front row and cross their arms like, all right, you know, time for you to show me uh, why you have the right to write this book. Mm-hmm. And
1: how has that gone?
0: <laughs> it's actually gone incredibly well, you know, mainly because I can say, look, you know, I'm not from here, but I'm straightforward about that. I'm, yeah. I'm an immigrant in a city of immigrants. This is my city. I, I, I love it. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, and. I think it, it, it helps enormously when I can explain to people that I did over two and a half years of research on it, just just talking to people and just making sure that to the absolute best of my ability that I could honor, you know, the the, the types of people who are in the book and, and, and just be respectful uh, of that time.
1: The people you did speak to um, in your research, uh, were they eager to tell their stories of 92?
0: Well, this is what's interesting. Uh, I actually went into it and I said, I don't want to know your story. And there were a few cases when I spoke to, I think, some folks who must have been fairly influential and active in 92 as former gang members. Uh, you know, I, I would walk into a room and before I could say anything, they would say, I'm never going to tell you what I did. Wow. And that's, when that happened, that's when I knew, generally speaking, I was in a room with someone who was pretty real. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was, I was very straightforward about it. I said, look, you know, there's so much nonfiction, so many newspaper stories, magazine stories, nonfiction books written about this. I'm not interested in that. No disrespect to you, but I, I don't want to tell your story. What I want to do is I want to hear from you what it smelled like. Over 11,000 yeah. fires, what did that smell like? What did it feel like? What were your hopes? What were your dreams? What, what did you want to achieve? What did you think was possible um, you know, those were the things that I wanted to know, and I, ultimately, those were the things that gave me, I think, the, the right creative fuel to, to make characters that that could be believable and, and and really speak to the time and the spirit of the era.
1: Well, one of the most memorable characters to me, um, and he's there right at the beginning, is uh, is Big Fate, who is a who is a uh, I don't know how you describe him. I mean, he's he's one of the big homies. He's he's the leader of a crew. He's a very he's a boss.
0: He's a boss, and and he has the keys to Linwood. So he's known as the guy in that town. He's,
1: he's the guy. People are afraid of him. They respect him. Um, people follow him. Mm-hmm. And what's most striking about him is you describe him physically from another character's point of view early as an mm-hmm. as a, as a imposing presence. But he's also cooking the first time we see him. And this mm-hmm. is a recurring theme. Throughout his number one – he does He does some unspeakable things. He does mm-hmm. some extra legal things. He does some things that are both of those things. And extra legal. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but throughout he's, he's – his main goal seems to be to feed people yeah. in a way that is very moving. He, he One of the first things that, that, that he and his crew do is they loot, uh, like, a, essentially a Costco to get as much meat as possible, to get as much oh, food as carneceria. possible. For,
0: so it's like a butcher shop, a, right. a neighborhood it's a, it's butcher shop. It's actually
1: a butcher shop yeah. um, it, it, to, to, to have, like, the biggest barbecue of all time, to feed yeah. people like they've never been fed. And, and, and it, it's a relatively small detail, but it's key, I think, to understanding mm. – your characters and this character in particular as more than the sum of his extra legal actions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was well done, sir. Thank I, you. Know, you. I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I'm so glad that you zeroed in on that. I feel like those were things that were so important to me, just, just in sitting down with people and speaking to people. I mean, yeah. And one of the things I found out time and again is, you know, uh, and perhaps in some small way this, this relates to today, there is very much a difference between legitimate protest you know, yeah. at, at police brutality and rioting, at some point that needle clicks over, and and rioting essentially becomes about crimes of opportunity, which yes. is in many ways what the entire book is about. Um, and yet, you know, I remember very vividly speaking to a guy. Uh, you know, I, I just said, "Hey, you know, wh- why did you go out? Why did you want to participate again?" Because I'm I'm curious about the hows, the whys, uh, and the dreams kind of rolled into that. And and he said honestly. I hadn't eaten in a day and a half and all the stores were open and all the food was free. And I will never forget that. Uh, you yeah. know, that just hit me so hard. And I think I went home and I started writing that night. Um, I don't know that I was writing big fates section that night, but, but that obviously played a role, you know, it, the, the key thing that I wanted to make very, very clear throughout this is I think, you know, so frequently folks who live that life or, uh, are demonized, very easily mm-hmm. demonized or, or categorized at the very least. And what I wanted to do was go in and humanize. And look, I'm not I'm not making excuses for anybody, but I, I just want to make it clear that there are reasons why people live like this. And if I can do my best as a writer to really dig into the psychology of survival and, and open it up and kind of lay it out for a reader, then I'd like to think I'm doing my job rightly. And, and I think that moment where, you know, big fate is – robbing the carneseria, you know, just getting so excited about all this, all this meat that they're going to grill and he's going to feed a hundred people. That for me is is a genuine moment, a a beautiful moment, because here's a guy who is barely in touch with his father. His mom died when he was young. He doesn't have his own house. He has to live in somebody else's house with with his homies. And and, and he takes it very, very seriously, like being a a father figure. Uh, And obviously from other character's perspectives, they don't necessarily see him that way. But the ones who are close to him, the ones that he is protecting, they absolutely do.
1: Well, also, he is quite good at what he does. I I don't know if it's necessarily the best career choice. It doesn't have necessarily Mm -hmm. uh, long-term growth potential. Um, (laughs) But but, but for certain members of the, the cast of your book, they are doing something that they are perversely good at and i, and yeah. I imagine in a, in a situation with very low opportunities that's not to be discounted
0: no it, it really isn't and i think there's there are certain skill sets you know that are built in these communities through necessity because they you know w- w- what else are you going to do uh, i think one of the characters who, who embodies this in, in kind of a beautiful and really sad way is clever you know who is yes. really the mastermind uh, you know in the book and and he's actually been sent uh to i think a crime scene uh school yes you know to become a crime scene investigator and it was so funny andy i can't even tell you i like i remember i sat down with somebody who you know had had a bit of juice back in the day and i thought i was this big smart novelist i said okay i've got this idea i've got this idea where uh, you know the gang yeah. sends a guy to crime scene investigation and he and he messes up crime scenes and i just remember him laughing at me and saying we've been doing that for years <laughs> and i had this aha oh crap moment at exactly the same time yeah. and, and that's when I knew I, I had to write it and, and with a character like Clever what he's learned in the hood actually serves him incredibly well as a crime scene investigator at one point he actually uses it to figure out who killed another gang member yeah. uh, or as close as they can and and yet he's he's torn at least you know I think it's day day four he's really torn by the fact that he now has actually really useful skills he could potentially go out and get a job, but yeah. he feels this loyalty.
1: Yeah, he was given a door. He was given a way out. Um, you, you mentioned the, the significance of the title of All Involved, and it—you it, know—one of the ways that it, it hits the hardest is in the way you chose to begin the book. Um, the book begins with a, a slap in the face, more or less. It, the character who starts the book, Ernesto, is—he's not involved. Uh, or at least he doesn't perceive himself to be. He's in many he's ways not. he's sort of
0: he's just not he's, he, he's related, not in however, life. He's, to right, two he's, people who are.
1: He, there's a tie, there's a connection, but he's not himself involved in the gang yeah. life. And in many ways, he's a traditional gateway character, you know, for mm-hmm. for fiction in the sense that he has, he, he has one foot in or is, at least his back to it, but he also has a way out. He, he has bigger dreams. Mm-hmm. He works hard. He's. He's a tra- – more or less he's a traditional heroic figure hmm. for a book, and uh, he has an just, uh, awful, awful experience happen to him. I mean his – I don't think it's a spoiler for people are going to no. read the book. It's not a spoiler. He, you can say it. That he does not survive his uh, opening chapter, um, and that's a, a sort of a, a slap in the face of the reader about what's to come. Hmm. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, it's horrifying. And, I, and I, I wanted to ask you about the decision to begin. I mean it's incredibly effective. Um, but it is, a, it is a brutal beginning to yeah. what is, you know, it, your book has moments of uplift and, and, and other things in it, but it is a, it is a brutal beginning.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad you feel it was effective because yeah. I really fretted. Like, I think of all the sections in the book, and there were some I had to rewrite multiple times, but this was the one I was most worried about. One, it's the beginning. And I didn't want to turn readers off or send them out but i felt it was imperative that people understood the stakes of the time and and the violence and the peril of the time and i didn't know that that was possible without really showing something that happens I, initially you know i just thought well I'll, I'll have him get really hurt you know that and then i'll go from there but as i was writing it it just given the, the, the kind of devil's night that lasted six days that was the LA riots, it just didn't seem right. you know. Otherwise, especially when, when I went a little bit further and I realized how deeply you know, yeah. th- the people who attacked him were affected by other members of, of Ernesto's family. So I, I was so worried about it because I never, I, at first I didn't think I could do it. You know, it's what, it's roughly 14 pages. And in yeah. that amount of time, I have to make a reader care about a character you you have to give him his
1: entire life before you take it away
0: yeah and that i uh, i i was so stressed about that and and in the end i I feel pretty happy with it and and i'm glad that it's moving to people because ultimately it's also it's also the wick in the book you know once that moment happens pretty much every other thing that happens in the book spirals out of that one moment that one decision
1: just as a as a writer something that that Fascinates me about your book is that you write very beautifully and very disturbingly about moments of death. Uh, there are characters that more, it's it, it's not throughout, but there are a number of characters who do not survive the riots in your book, um, and you and you describe their physical passing often from their own mm-hmm. perspective.
0: How did you approach that?
1: I mean, I, I the one thing I know about you is that you have not experienced that yourself. Uh, you are alive, <laughs> talking to me. right I'm now. alive. I'm here. It, it is a <laughs> it, you know it, it is. One of the, I would imagine it is one of the more challenging things any writer has to do mm. because you know, that is not something you can, you can do limited research, but you can't really figure it out. You can't know for yourself.
0: Well, it's I think for me the starting point is that when I was 17 years old, I was hit so hard in the face it tore my nose out, okay. left the nasal bone intact, but it tore all the cartilage out. And you actually have a tremendous amount of cartilage that goes up into your into your skull. Don't, yeah, I don't I mean sure. to make you.
1: <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'm glad to know I have a lot of it. It's yeah, good.
0: you do. You're good. Um, I had to have uh, two facial reconstructive surgeries from that, and it took about a year uh, before I could really properly smell or taste again. Wow. And so when I write about violence, I write about it as someone who understands it deeply from the inside out. I I write about it as someone whose life completely changed. The path of my life couldn't possibly have changed more, um, you know, based on on what happened to me. Before then, I was set to go into the Air Force Academy. You know, I'm from a very (laughs) long-serving Air Force family and grew up in Colorado Springs. My dad said, you're going to the Air Force Academy to my brother and I because we're the last Gaddises in the family. That's what you're doing. Um, And I was completely going to do that until my accident happened. Wow. And I spent a lot of time in a hospital bed. I spent a lot of time at home recovering, reading books, watching movies. And doing that made me want to be a writer. So it it also, I think, tremendously increased my empathy. So to be able to sit down with people, you know, uh, who almost to a person had been touched by death, and especially in Linwood, um it whether it was a father or a mother or a brother or a cousin or an aunt or an uncle, and to just watch as they described you know what that was like, and in some cases you know they were there uh, i I just said you know how does that how did that feel that again i 'm not interested in the whats but how did that feel what, how did that change your life how your perspective on life you know wh- and that's that's what I went with. So in a way, it was this fusion of, kind of what I what I've been through, um, and also I think an incredibly open and 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 caring group of people who were willing to talk to me about the realities of of that world and that life.
1: What's wonderful about your book is that it's not theoretical. There's the the the, mm-hmm. the violence and is, is grounded in physicality and in actual what this means. That's you're, you're my just... understanding of it. Yeah. That's
0: how
1: I that's get it. I'm curious about if there were any specific authors that you look to for inspiration in this work. Because the mm-hmm. thing that I took away from, especially the early chapters, was, and and this is just maybe me bringing my own uh, fandom and opinions into it. But I, I was I was seeing traces of people like George Pelicanos or Richard mm-hmm. Price who are traditionally, you know, I guess they're not so much anymore, but for a time potentially were ghettoized as crime writers, mm-hmm. you know, as if that's some sort of a, a genre when it used to be a dirty word. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean it in the best possible way because writers like that to me are among the very few that have shown a real genuine interest in the real life of cities, in the underclass, in yeah. life as not as a theoretical exercise. Mm-hmm. Um that's, uh, uh, going back to what we said before, life that's outside of that clean, well-lighted room that uh, that English majors are are supposed to occupy. I I wondered if you you had a connection to that thread of of writing.
0: Yes, I I mean, absolutely. I think Los Angeles writing in general absolutely fascinates me. So in a way, I came at it Mm -hmm. slightly more with that uh, dark city mentality, you know. Um, So I've read a ton of Ross MacDonald I absolutely mm-hmm. love Ross MacDonald. the Galton case is by far his best work and I was kind of stupidly happy that uh, David Fincher bought the rights to that last year yeah. and I'm really hoping that that he ends up making that um, I love James M Kane you know I love Raymond Chandler you know I lived in downtown uh, in, in, a, in a really difficult era I think you know from from like 08 to, to 2011 during kind of the worst of of the recent uh, recession, the Great Recession, or whatever people want to call it these days, and I lived in a building that was almost exclusively uh, tenanted by people who had been moved from Hurricane Katrina wow. so I lived in a building that was like an island of this of the south of New Orleans and of uh, Mississippi as well, and it was just this incredible experience for me, but it also made so much sense with say the writings of Fonte and, and Kane in particular, when they write about LA as being an immigrant city and, and yeah. how everyone is from somewhere else. Uh, that just really rang true for me as far as, um, the violence. I mean, maybe I don't want to sound silly, but I don't really read the work of other writers for, for violence. You know, I, I'm always interested in, like you said, like the, the underclass issues, the survival issues, you know, how, uh, black market economies work, I mean, those things absolutely fascinate me. And I think one of the things that fascinated me in my own research when I spoke to people was that LA being such a wide, flat place, there are tremendously large residential areas that are not serviced um, in the way that like a Chicago or New York would be serviced by markets and and uh, entertainment and other things. So what you get is actually something very similar to what I described in the book. You know, you have restaurants run out of people's houses Mm-hmm. You have somebody running a gambling parlor in their living room, you know. You, you get uh, like this this vibrant city life in a residential area in a very extra legal way, as Andy yeah. Greenwald would say. <laughs> yes. So, uh, you know, I I, I suppose in, a, in in a way I look to the past. But I, my, my wife, uh, after she'd kind of gone through the book, and and she. Uh, worked at the DA's office for a while. She has a criminal law background. I mean, I definitely leaned on her in terms of, yeah. you know, being able to understand this world better. But she looked at it and she said, you know what's really interesting? And she's a lifelong Angelino. She grew up here. Her family's been here for a couple generations. I said, what? And she said, well, you know, you don't write about LA the way a lot of people do in this day and age. It's not about the glitz and the glamour. You're You're more concerned with, you know, working people and people who aren't even able to get work. She yeah. said, I think... She said, you're not going to like this, but it's a little bit like Steinbeck in a way. It's just Steinbeck with violence. Yeah. (laughs) Steinbeck with AKs. Yeah. Yes. There are AKs in the book. If you're interested and you want to buy it for that reason, you will not be disappointed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I hope hope there aren't people who are doing that, but I get some sales out of it. Um, The riots happened uh, 23 years ago, um, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Do you think? Well, this is not the right way to phrase the question. From this vantage point, in considering the research you did, what did Los Angeles learn from the '92 riots, if anything?
0: I think, in a lot of ways, LA learned that communication is vital. Uh, there, there was a tremendous amount of balkanization going on in the '90s. You know, you had yeah. these incredible. Uh, Communities that were very insular and really took care of each other but didn't talk to anyone around them and as a result had quite a bit of conflict. I think the two groups that were, you know, I think most people are fairly aware of in regard to the 92 riots are the African-Americans and the Koreans, Mm -hmm. Um, Korean-Americans. There was a a lot of stress there and a lot of strain. And I think the good news is um, people learn pretty quickly, wow, we need to talk. We need to actually get things out there. It doesn't mean we need to agree on everything, but we need need, to uh, excuse me. <laughs> we at least need to have a dialogue. And that has occurred. It, it really has occurred. And I think, you know, that's it's definitely been for the better. There have a lot of other things have gone on since then. But I think, you know, the, the peace marches that went on, you know, on days three and four uh, yeah. were, were, were powerful and important. And now I think we, we live in, in many ways, a much more hybridized city where some really incredible things are happening culturally and also in food. I mean, you mentioned food yeah. in the book. Food's a big deal to me, mainly because at one point a doctor told me, we don't know if you'll ever be able to smell or taste again.
1: I can't, I can't think of a worse nightmare. Oh. Uh, that was what I was cringing about.
0: Yeah, that that was pretty tough. And now, uh, you know, and it, it, I can't help it. It gets goes through to my fiction. But I also think that food is a tremendously important and interesting way to find out about culture and, and what cultures value and and, and what and the way they want to interact and communicate. So I agree.
1: I, I, are you familiar with Roy Choi, who's a, you know, a Korean-American chef out there? Um, yes, I am. You are.
0: <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> I, I mean,
1: he, he's kind an of amazing cook. go to
0: his restaurants here. He's an LA.
1: amazing cook, but his the way he talks about food and about culture and about Los Angeles, I think, is yeah. in many ways even more important. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. An episode, he's an ambassador. He is an ambassador, and, you know, he's now building um, – Local. Equivalent of like low low cost, but fat, an equivalent of a type of fast food restaurant, but he's yes. building it in underserved neighborhoods. Yes. He's using good ingredients to do yeah. it. And he's it's hoping franchise Local, opportunities. It's called We Local, L-O-C-O-L. Yeah. Uh,
0: they're building one in Watts right now. Right. The entire idea, I think it's, it's Roy and Daniel Patterson uh, from San Francisco. They've combined yeah. together. And they, their basic premise is, look, um, corporations really shouldn't be deciding what we eat. Yeah. Chefs should be deciding what we eat, which I think is is so true and wonderful and important. And they're really going to be focusing on bringing good quality food to areas that most need it. And wow, I, you know, I just can't I can't support them enough. It, it's it's an incredibly valuable and important endeavor, and I really hope it helps change uh, the face of LA. I
1: mean, is it this is a this is a poor food metaphor, but is it pie in the sky thinking to look at? Things like what what he's doing, and um, you know, I'm remembering his appearance on Tony Bourdain's show recently, where he went through uh, Koreatown in L.A. Mm. and said, "Well, this is what was on fire. This Mm. is what people were guarding with guns, and this is what it is now." You know, and he's pointing to shiny new developments, and you know, he has this pot restaurant in the line Hotel, and it's changed so much So much. And it's possible to look at that and say, "Oh, look, it's it's changed for the better. Look at the opportunities, and look at the." Is this just me from a distance saying, well, I, I can't wait to go there and, and eat his food? Or, or is, there ac- is there actual, like, boots on the ground type of change in terms of the way the neighborhood feels and the way the neighborhood relates to other neighborhoods?
0: Oh, there absolutely is. You know, there absolutely is change, and I think it's it's far more positive. And, and I think Roy, it doesn't just, <clears throat> you know, put his wallet where his mouth is in, in investing in these areas, but he's also a kind of a perfect example of – someone who, who lives it by learning a tremendous amount about Mexican culture and cuisine and then finding right. ways to integrate it within Korean cuisine. And then somehow through that incredible transmogrification creates something deeply American and yeah, so beautiful a, a, in the same way.
1: The Koji taco. I mean, this is, yeah. it, 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 it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It, he, it's
0: amazing. Oh, the carito the Korean burrito. The,
1: right. I mean, he made, he made a Korean taco and put it in a truck and drove it around all of Los Angeles yeah. and, and shared it and, I mean he's a
0: he's an absolute trailblazer. I mean he's he's a really really important son of Los Angeles at this point point. and uh if anyone's more interested in him actually read his book LA Son which is yeah. brilliant and he talks about um how he came up which I will not ruin cuz it is amazing. <laughs> um but I think just just to answer your question um and as you've noticed I'm I'm fairly easily uh <laughs> you can get me. You talk. You get we're, talking about food and I will just go the other direction. We're going to do but, a food podcast later. I think that awesome. we have to do. <laughs> come to L.A. Come to L.A. and I will take you to eat and we will do that. That's going to happen. <laughs> Cameras or no, that's going to happen. Let's do it. Um, well, the, the only other thing I would say is, you know, the nice thing about all this development and all these other things that are happening, and you talked about the boots on the ground. and Are things really changing? They are because – jobs are available right. but, you know
1: it always comes down to that
0: that is enormous you know I, I mean a guy gets a guy gets an opportunity to do that he's not going to be on the street he's not going to be on the hustle uh and that's that's really really important um so we've come a long way from an, an incredibly brilliant book by uh, hector tobar which is the tattooed soldier the last few days of that book take place roughly in koreatown during the riots uh mm-hmm. in, in a basically a grudge match between a couple El Salvadoran guys who have a past um also a brilliant book but it, it, i mean if that's roughly what we're looking at for 92 and we're obviously looking at these incredible images of people standing on roofs with guns and where we are now uh it, it's it's far more inclusive it's far more interesting and and i think there's a fluidity uh in Los Angeles now i think mainly because it was so Downtrodden Things were so difficult here for so long. Real estate was so cheap. In many ways, it's why downtown is having a tremendous resurgence. Yeah. The arts district, the warehouse district, it's because these are places that can be changed, that can be redeveloped and, and ideally offer jobs to people who need them.
1: Um, because I am the the TV critic for Grand Linden my, most of my time, I do have to ask you about potential <laughs> other, other uh, adaptations or other life future, uh, you know, the potential future life for all right. involved on the screen. Right. Um, five years ago, I would have said TV would never look at this. I know you're not going to break news on this podcast probably. But now I look at this and I say, well, this, is, this could be a miniseries. There's a richness here and a depth Thank that you. TV is now suddenly interested in, uh, in exploring. Um, that's what I would vote for. But I'm, I'm, sure, you've <laughs> had, I'm sure you've had nibbles and conversations. I'm curious how you envision it.
0: Well, I, actually, you know, I was asked – Fairly early on in the process, I, I have a really—I I lucked out. I have a really wonderful television agent and uh, film and television, excuse me. And she said, "What do you, what do you envision for this? What, what would you like?" And I said, "Honestly, I would—I would love to see it in an episodic." TV format, I think that could be really rich and and really find a way to explore Los Angeles in the way it deserves to be explored. You know, it's tremendously difficult. And we've seen for the last, you know, 90 years of cinema how difficult it is to try to capture a place in 90 or 120 minutes. But, you know, as we saw with, you know, uh, New Mexico and Breaking Bad, you know, you get a few seasons, you can really explore a place at, at the very least, you know, make it a character. You know, in a yeah. story, really show the vistas, really show uh, the beauty of it, but also the potential difficulties that, that come out of that. And I think, you know, for what it's worth, uh, you know, I've always kind of viewed it as a, as a noir western. You know, this particular book. So uh, the, I I brought that to her, and she said, "All right." And 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 since then, we've we've uh, been pursuing that path, and really, uh, we're very close. We're, I, I can't break news. You're right, but uh, we're very close to to tying something up.
1: That's very exciting. Um, also exciting was right, – I'm not sure if it was right before we started recording or not, but you alluded to another book that you had to, to finish, which is that, – that is an insane thing to me if that's true. <laughs> have, have you actually finished another book? Uh,
0: getting there. Getting there.
1: So not another eight-year gap? or, or No, definitely not.
0: No, think. no, no. I've learned my lesson, thank goodness, and, and I think it's crucial – to just keep working, keep flowing, and that, that doesn't mean every single one is is going to be amazing or, or fantastic, but I'm going to do the absolute best I can, you know, in, in a given moment and, and just keep moving forward. But uh, I can tell you this, I mean, as far as, you know, the, the serious novels from here on out, I, 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 they're all going to be set in L.A., and, and I'm really going to do my best to uh, keep exploring these, these hidden places.
1: Doing the research for the book was obviously enormously transformative for you and formative for the novel. But um, since the book was published, you've been traveling. Um, yeah, we spoke. A lot. You, you've been to the UK. You're going to to, to Paris. You're, uh, you've been all around <laughs> this country, and probably will do it again. Um, how has that changed you? Being not just being someone who's representing this book, but in a way being spoken to as an emissary of the city that you adopted and have come
0: to love. Yeah, it's heavy. It's it's heavy because I take it very very seriously. Uh, and and I I feel like it's up to me in some cases to really be a truth teller about Los Angeles and especially um, for for certain folks in Los Angeles and 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 that's difficult because first of all no one is voiceless but there are certainly people who are ignored uh, in, mm-hmm. in the larger media or, or aren't given opportunities to speak and actually say look this is how it is in my neighborhood or in my city and and I've just been incredibly fortunate to to have met some people who who believe in me and trust um that i can do that and obviously it's it's people here in los angeles but it's also you know people like echo and and picador in the uk they they've really kind of put me out there in in, in a fantastic way it's it's every author's dream but i I would be lying to you if i didn't say that i i got really nervous you know being in the uk I, i just remember my publicist kind of came up to me after uh we had an event in liverpool and and Liverpool is a port city, mm-hmm. uh, very urban, uh, has dealt with riots. So in many ways, there are a lot of parallels uh, with Los Angeles. And that came up again and again in the conversation. But she came up to me in the end and she said, look, um, I just wanted to say that this never happens at book events. She says, you know, you were talking about L.A., the history of L.A., uh, crime and also, you know, the urban landscape and how this connects. And this. she said that yeah. this never happens at book events. And I said. Kate, I hate to break it to you, but this happens everywhere. And it's up to me to, to be on the ball to make sure that, uh, that I am being truthful, that I, that I've read up on what I'm talking about. And, you know, almost inevitably, and I don't know if you've read it yet, Andy, but, uh, Ghetto Side by Jill Leovy is no. an absolutely brilliant, crushing book. Um, and, and if you like All Involved, you should absolutely read it. Um, it's a, it's basically about, uh, the strides LA has made or failed to make, um, since, you know, the, the, the difficult days of the late eighties, early nineties. And Mm -hmm. she basically follows, um, homicide detectives in Watts from 07 to 09. And she's a former crime reporter with the LA times. And she just writes so beautifully about it. And it is so heartbreaking. It's one of the best books I've read in a really long time, and inevitably I'll bring it up because I think she has some really important things to say about where L.A. is. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, being an emissary, uh, if I am that, um, you know, the best way to do that is to be informed and and make sure that that I'm really connecting with and, and reading what other people are doing.
1: I couldn't agree more. The only the only pushback I'll give you is the thought that British people would be resistant because, in my experience, mm. no one loves Los Angeles more than British people. It's like it's like their dream. They can't believe it's real. If you go to a hotel in Los Angeles, the pool is only British people. And they're only and British they're
0: people. All uh, they're all sunburned. They're all sunburned immediately, but they're so happy because well, it's just like heaven to them. Well, you know, I'll say this though. I'll say this. Uh, the most incredible thing happened. We had a one night only uh, art event in London while I was over there. It was really kind of a, a fantastic evening. Um, where we took over a gallery and Evan Scratterstew from Uglar uh, came over with me. We put up a bunch of pieces and we basically, and one was this enormous Rodney King piece that he had painted that basically showed what happened to Rodney after he was beaten by the police. Yeah. But uh, the, the, the scale of it was, was enormous. I think it was six feet by six feet. So it was very imposing and it was right in front of people and, and it made it a pretty fascinating event. And, and, Wow, some really interesting questions, mainly about police violence, which honestly knows no city, knows no country. That's just how it is. Um, And there were riots in London in 2011, so I got asked an awful lot about that. But the most fascinating thing actually happened at the end when people came up to sign books. And uh, an older guy, I think he was probably early 40s, but he looked like he'd lived hard. Um, He jumped to the front of the line and he ran up. And I just my my first thought is, you know, something about to go down. uh, You know, do I need to protect myself? But he had a look on his face like he just desperately wanted to share. And he proceeded to tell me a story about being here in Los Angeles on April 30th, 1992, the second day of the riots, riding a motorcycle. He was out looting and he got jumped by three gang members and they beat him with a tire iron and they broke his jaw in seven places and they split his skull broke his oh. collarbone and he was talking in this kind of frantic way that that I've I've grown to recognize which is simply that he's probably felt for a long time that he's never really had the opportunity to tell anyone what happened to him someone right. that might actually understand and it was just an incredible moment. And, and honestly, like this, this happens sometimes we'll go out, you know, we'll do events somewhere and somebody somewhere will come up and say, like, I was there or this happened to me or this went on. It, it, it's an incredibly seminal moment in the history of Los Angeles, but LA is an international city. We've always had plenty of people here from everywhere. And I, you know, one person asked me, say, they said, look, you know, would you ever be interested in writing a riot story about tourists who got stuck there during that time? I said, absolutely. Yeah. That sounds yeah. interesting to me. Um, um, I don't know if it would be the main portion of the novel, but that could certainly be an interesting side story. Uh, you know, it, but it's it's incredible the ways in which people connect and want to talk and and want to I think more than anything understand why riots happened in the first place, understand mm-hmm. that, that amount of violence, and truthfully, the only way to do it is, is is to is to talk to people and and figure out the hows and whys from from, from that perspective.
1: Well, your, your book works brilliantly as a window into that world and into that mindset, but also just as a, as a work of literature. I'm blown away by it. I'm so glad to have had the chance to talk to you about it. Uh, we hold the book up. I don't have my copy yet, so yes. I this know this is... is the wrong copy, <laughs> and some people are listening to this, so the video part doesn't even matter. I, I them, can't but...
0: see the video on the screen, so I don't know if this is... Can you see it?
1: I can see it, it and, and, and some people can. This
0: is the uh, limited edition proof from the UK that Picador did, and this has uh, the font by Chasbo Jorquez, who is an incredible... Uh, LA artist, uh, calligrapher, graffiti artist, just, I mean, he's the first guy in as far as I know of ever to have cut out a stencil on Mylar and spray painted through it in the sixties. Like he basically invented street art. Yeah. And he has also done just iconic stuff. I don't know if you can see it, but the warriors.
1: People uh, watching on YouTube can see it. You can
0: see the warriors behind me. He did that font too. I mean, he's just – he's the godfather, you know, as far as L.A. art is concerned. And I was – I can't tell you uh, how excited I was that, that he did this because that was just – it was a dream come true.
1: This is the sign of ultimate humility in an author that he's pointing – he's directing attention to the cover, not the pages in between.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, the, the inside parts are pretty good too. Um, Thank you, sir. Ryan Gass, <laughs> author of All Involved, published by Echo. Uh, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Grantland to hear more Grantland shows in your ear balls, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on
1: iTunes, or go to grantland.com and click on
0: podcasts.